welcome to Bourbon and History, the presidential ranking series. In this episode, we finally get into the presidents I've referred to as the heavy hitters, the ones who had, by far, the most influence on our nation and whose policies remain with us today. Last time, we discussed Dwight Eisenhower, who came in at number three on the rankings and the first of the great presidents. But despite Ike being considered generally by most to have been a great president for his leadership capabilities during the first decade of the Cold War, many of the domestic and foreign policy programs he helped develop and sign into law pale in comparison to the program's leadership and governing style of today's president. Serving through what could be argued was the greatest crisis to face the nation since the Civil War, this president had to handle not just one, but two major catastrophes, both of which threatened the livelihoods of Americans themselves and the very safety and security of the nation. This is episode 1.44 and number two on the rankings, Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933 to 1945, 51 years old, a Democrat from New York. Most Americans can point to at least one program developed and enacted during the Roosevelt administration. Social Security, the FDIC, the SEC, all programs passed during Roosevelt's presidency to help combat the gravest financial crisis in the nation's history, the Great Depression. Americans elected Roosevelt president in the early 1930s because they believed he could combat the Depression more effectively than his Republican opponent, President Herbert Hoover, who had taken the brunt of the blame for the nation's economic woes over his first term in office. Roosevelt promised the American people what he called a New Deal, and by the time of his death, many felt he had delivered on that promise. By implementing a variety of innovative policies, FDR, as he was known, was able to pull the United States away from the brink of economic, social, and perhaps even political disaster, laying the foundation for future stability and prosperity in the decades to come. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born in 1882 in Hyde Park, New York, to James and Sarah Roosevelt. James Roosevelt was a landowner and businessman of considerable but not substantial wealth, the young Franklin grew up under the watchful eye of his mother, and her devotion to her only child was considerable and would have profound and lasting impact on FDR throughout his life. At age 14, Franklin's parents sent him to the Groton School, a prestigious boarding school in Massachusetts. At Groton, FDR grew increasingly fond of his distant cousin, Theodore Roosevelt, a rising star in the Republican Party. From Groton, FDR went on to Harvard College, where he spent more time on the college newspaper than he did on his studies. While at Harvard, FDR apparently declared himself a Democrat and began courting his distant cousin, Eleanor Roosevelt. Franklin and Eleanor were married in New York City in 1905, a few months after FDR began law school at Columbia. The marriage ceremony itself was a ritzy affair, highlighted by the presence of the sitting president, Theodore Roosevelt, who gave Eleanor away. Roosevelt had little interest in the law, and like his cousin Teddy, his attention soon turned to politics. He ran successfully for the New York State Senate in 1910 and was re-elected in 1912. 
1913, he joined the Wilson administration as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, the same position Teddy had once held, and played a key role in readying the United States for entry into the World War. FDR was roundly praised for his efforts, and he quickly began earning a name for himself in Democratic circles inside and outside New York State. Indeed, in 1920, the party named him its vice presidential candidate. Although the ticket of James Cox and FDR would lose in a landslide to Republican Warren Harding, FDR's political future remained bright. But in 1921, tragedy struck the young Roosevelt. That year, he contracted polio, a terrifying and incurable disease that left him paralyzed in his legs. Only through an arduous rehabilitation process, and with the support of his wife, his children, and his close confidants, was FDR able to regain some use of his legs. Throughout the 1920s, he invested a considerable part of his fortune in rehabilitating a spa in Warm Springs, Georgia, whose curative waters aided his own rehabilitation. In later years, the cottage he built there would be called the Little White House. Though polio devastated FDR physically, his iron will seemed to grow stronger as he fought through his recovery. Eleanor later said of the time, quote, I know not that he had a real fear when he was first taken ill, but he learned to surmount it. After that, I never heard him say he was afraid of anything. After spending nearly seven years rehabbing and recovering physically from the effects of the polio, FDR decided to make a political comeback. In 1928, he won the governorship of New York, once again following in his cousin Teddy's political footsteps. The stock market crash of October 1929 served as a harbinger of tougher times to come, and led Governor Roosevelt to focus on combating the state's economic woes. FDR implemented a number of innovative relief and recovery initiatives, unemployment insurance, pensions for the elderly, limits on work hours, and massive public works projects that established him as a liberal reformer. FDR's efforts also won him re-election as governor in 1930, a rare feat in the midst of the Great Depression. By the presidential election season of 1932, the Great Depression had only worsened and showed no signs of abating. With a Democratic victory over the incumbent Herbert Hoover all but assured, Democrats turned to FDR, who by that point had become a popular and successful two-term governor with a recognizable last name. Promising a new deal for the American people, FDR began the presidential race in earnest. He rallied the progressive supporters of the Wilson administration while also appealing to many conservatives, establishing himself as the leading candidate in the South and West. The chief opposition to Roosevelt's candidacy came from Northeastern conservatives, Speaker of the House John Nance Gardner of Texas and Al Smith, the 1928 Democratic presidential nominee. Roosevelt entered the Democratic National Convention of 1932 with a lead in the delegate count due to his success in the primaries, but most delegates entered the convention unbound to any particular candidate. On the first presidential ballot of the convention, Roosevelt received the votes of more than half of the delegates, but failed to achieve the necessary two-thirds to capture the nomination. Al Smith finished a distant second. Roosevelt then promised the vice presidential nomination to Gardner, who controlled the votes of Texas and California, leading Gardner to throw his support behind Roosevelt after the third ballot. On the fourth ballot, Roosevelt clinched the nomination. 
He then flew in from New York to Chicago to give his acceptance speech, becoming the first major party presidential nominee to accept the nomination of their party in person. His appearance at the convention was part political, however, as a way to show some weary delegates who worried about his handicap that he was physically capable of standing up to the stresses of not only a presidential campaign, but the office of president itself. In his acceptance speech, Roosevelt declared his pledge to the American people for a new deal, as well as securities regulation on Wall Street, tariff reductions, farm relief, government-funded public works, and other government actions to address the Great Depression. The Democratic platform also called for a repeal of prohibition, though FDR himself had not taken a stance one way or the other on the issue. Roosevelt's primary campaign strategy was one of caution, intent upon avoiding mistakes that would distract from Hoover's failings on the economy. After the convention, Roosevelt won endorsements from several progressive Republicans, including George W. Norris, Hiram Johnson, and Robert LaFollette Jr. He also reconciled with the party's conservative wing, and even Al Smith was persuaded to support the Democratic ticket. Hoover's handling of the Bonus Army in July 1932, which saw U.S. Army troops under the command of General Douglas MacArthur, use tear gas and other tactics to forcefully remove World War I veterans from the nation's capital, further damaged the incumbent's popularity, as newspapers across the country criticized the use of force to disperse the assembled veterans. The election was a culmination of the nation's plight and mistrust in the Hoover administration to successfully alleviate the nation from its economic woes. Roosevelt won 57% of the popular vote and carried all but six states. Coalitions from different regions banded together to elect FDR and give Democrats control of both chambers of Congress. The elections of 1932 and 1936 marked the end of the fourth two-party system, which had begun with the election of William McKinley in 1896 and ushered in the beginning of the fifth two-party system, which would last until the late 1960s. Roosevelt's victory was enabled by the creation of the New Deal Coalition, comprised of small farmers, Southern whites, Catholics, big city political machines, labor unions, African Americans, Jews, intellectuals, and political liberals. The creation of the New Deal Coalition transformed American politics. Between the Civil War and 1929, Democrats had rarely controlled both houses of Congress and had won just four of 17 presidential elections. From 1932 to 1979, Democrats won eight of 12 presidential elections and generally controlled both houses of Congress. With the inauguration not until March of 1933, Roosevelt began to assemble his cabinet. He also met with outgoing President Hoover, who tried to convince FDR to drop many of his campaign pledges concerning the economy, and offered to form a joint commission between the two to tackle the Depression. Roosevelt refused, and instead focused on getting as many of his policies implemented as possible immediately following his inauguration. In February 1933, however, Roosevelt's presidency was nearly aborted when a man named Giuseppe Zangara, who expressed a hatred for all rulers, attempted to assassinate FDR during a trip to Miami, Florida. Right as Zangara went to shoot the president-elect, however, a woman standing nearby noticed him and hit him with her purse, 
causing the would-be assassin to shoot Chicago Mayor Anton Carmack instead, who would die later from the injury. On March 4, 1933, Franklin Roosevelt was inaugurated as the nation's 32nd president. In his inaugural address, Roosevelt gave hope to dispirited Americans throughout the nation, assuring them that they had nothing to fear but fear itself. This is a day of national consecration. And I am certain that on this day, my fellow Americans expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision with the present situation of our people impels. So first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. Roosevelt's New Deal would fight the Great Depression on a number of fronts. In the famous first hundred days of his presidency, FDR pushed through legislation that reformed the nation's banking and financial sectors, while simultaneously trying to cure the ills afflicting American agriculture. To meet the immediate crisis of starvation and the dire needs of the nation's unemployed, FDR provided direct cash relief for the poor and jobs programs. Roosevelt's reassuring fireside chats, in which he spoke to the nation via radio about the country's predicament, calmed a worried public and restored faith in the government's leaders. In 1935, FDR took the New Deal in a more liberal direction, overseeing the enactment of some of the most far-reaching social and economic legislation in American history. The Wagner Act allowed labor unions to organize and bargain collectively, conferring on them a new legitimacy. The Social Security Act set up programs designed to provide for the needs of the aged, the poor, and the unemployed, establishing a social welfare net that, at least theoretically, covered all Americans. By the end of his second term, FDR and his advisors insisted that the federal government should stimulate the national economy through its spending policies, a strategy that held sway for the next 30 years. But those weren't the only domestic policies FDR pushed through during his first two terms in office. And buckle in, because there is a lot of them. Remember, until FDR's election in 1932, the federal government had traditionally taken a hands-off approach to tackling domestic issues. Past economic panics had resulted in significant unemployment, bank failures, and reduction in personal wealth, but presidents had always chosen to let the economy fix itself. Indeed, that had been the strategy of Herbert Hoover, who felt that if the government simply did what it had always done following any major economic downturn, which was essentially nothing, the economy would eventually fix itself. The Great Depression, however, unbeknownst to Hoover or anyone else at the time, was a different animal altogether. And Roosevelt knew that even if a majority of his policies failed to ultimately bring the nation out of the Depression, the mere appearance of an active federal government trying to do something would have positive ramifications on the nation. By 1933, economic conditions had deteriorated from bad to outright hellish. 
Unemployment grew to over 25% of the nation's workforce, with more than 12 million Americans out of work. And making matters worse, a new wave of bank failures hit in February 1933, further depleting the savings of many Americans and eroding even more trust in the nation's financial institutions. In trying to make sense of FDR's domestic policies, historians and political scientists have split FDR's programs into two categories, referred to as the First New Deal, which lasted from 1933 to 1935, and the Second New Deal, which stretched from 1935 to 1938. And again, FDR himself had no clear-cut answer to combating the Depression. Instead, his plan was to just throw as much spam at the wall as he could and hope something stuck. The first New Deal began almost immediately upon Roosevelt's assumption of the presidency. FDR invoked the analog of war as he spurred Congress towards a flurry of legislative activity that became known as the Hundred Days, from March to June 1933, in which the new president won passage of numerous bills designed to end the nation's economic troubles. In general, the first New Deal looked to stabilize the U.S. financial system, provide relief and jobs to the suffering, and re-energize America's capitalist economy. He sought to achieve this last objective by building partnerships between business and government to resuscitate industrial production. In carrying forward this agenda, FDR began to recreate the role of the federal government in American economic and political life. The first task FDR took up was to stabilize the nation's banking system. On March 6, two days after his inauguration, Roosevelt declared a national bank holiday to end a run by depositors seeking to withdraw their money from faltering banks. FDR also called Congress into emergency session, where the legislature enacted the president's banking proposal. Under this plan, the federal government would inspect all banks, reopen those that were sufficiently solvent, reorganize those that could be saved, and close those that were beyond repair. On March 12th, FDR went on the radio giving the first of his many fireside chats to explain his plan to Americans and to assure them that their money would be safe in the reopened banks. During the following weeks, Americans returned nearly $1 billion to bank vaults, reinforcing the trust they placed in their new president. FDR then won a significant number of other reforms related to the nation's financial sector. In May 1933, he signed the Securities Act, which required corporations and stockbrokers to release accurate information about stocks to investors. In June 1933, he signed the Glass-Steagall Act, which created the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, guaranteeing the savings of average citizens and prevented commercial banks from engaging in investment banking. In 1934, the Securities and Exchange Act created the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, which was charged with regulating financial markets. Also in 1933, Roosevelt took the monumental step of taking America off the gold standard, and the Banking Act of 1935 gave the country a central banking mechanism for the first time. A reorganized Reconstruction Finance Corporation, RFC, spun off subsidiaries, such as the Federal National Mortgage Association, Fannie Mae, that, along with the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, made it possible for millions of Americans to buy or renovate homes. To meet the immediate crisis of starvation and the dire needs of the nation's unemployed, 
FDR established several public relief programs throughout 1933. The Federal Emergency Relief Administration, FERA, made direct cash allocations available to states for immediate payments to the unemployed. The Civilian Conservation Corps, the C, put 300,000 young men to work in 1,200 camps, planting trees, building bridges, and cleaning beaches. Finally, the Civil Works Administration, the CWA, spent almost $1 billion on public works projects, including airports and roads, though the CWA would be shut down within four months due to its staggering cost of operation. In the hope of spurring the recovery of American agriculture, Roosevelt asked Congress to pass the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the AAA, which it did in May 1933. FDR and his advisors believed that overproduction had caused gluts in the farm market, dropping prices and, in turn, sending farmers' incomes plummeting. The AAA aimed to inflate farmers' incomes by offering cash incentives to farmers who agreed to cut production. The AAA originally covered wheat, corn, cotton, hogs, milk, rice, and tobacco, but Congress added new commodities to the program in the ensuing years. More than 3 million farmers joined the AAA program in its first year, and farm income did increase by more than 50% between 1932 and 1935. But despite these impressive gains, the benefits of the AAA generally only went to large farm owners, rather than the millions of poor white and African-American tenant farmers and sharecroppers who lived in abject poverty. Additionally, AAA policies stressed the lowering of production, which in a few cases in 1933 meant that crops were plowed under and livestock killed. With many Americans hungry and ill-clothed, critics labeled such policies utterly idiotic. To help reduce poverty in rural areas, FDR established the Farm Credit Association, another offshoot of the RFC, which lent more than a billion dollars to families to save their farms from foreclosure. The Federal Emergency Relief Administration and the Resettlement Administration sponsored experimental rural communities and greenbelt towns. The Farm Security Administration, the FSA, enabled tenant farmers to buy farms and built modern labor camps for migrants. But nothing did more to rescue the farm family from isolation than the Rural Electrification Administration, the REA, which brought electricity for the first time to millions of rural homes, and with it, such conveniences as radios and washing machines. And the REA is just one example of FDR's interest in public power, which he had sponsored as governor of New York. Huge dams, Grand Coulee and Bonneville, had transformed the economy of the Pacific Northwest, while the Tennessee Valley Authority, the TVA, helped bring power to millions of towns across Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, and North Carolina. The Tennessee Valley stretched some 40,000 square miles from Virginia to Mississippi and was the poorest region in the nation. The TVA aimed to marshal the area's natural resources into an engine of economic uplift by building dams and power plants that would bring jobs, electricity, and flood control to the valley. By the end of the 1930s, the TVA had brought millions of Southern Americans electric power, roads, and jobs in regions that previously had no phones, electric lights, or stable employment. And finally, in some of the most controversial legislation of his administration, Roosevelt set out to help American industry get back on its feet. 
The centerpiece of his industrial recovery program was the National Industrial Recovery Act, the NIRA, that Congress passed in June 1933. Drawing its inspiration from the federal government's efforts at economic planning during World War I and the voluntary trade associations of the 1920s, the NIRA provided for national economic planning as opposed to individualistic and competitive laissez-faire capitalism. The NIRA created two new agencies, the Public Works Administration, the PWA, and the National Recovery Administration, the NRA. The PWA, run by Secretary of the Interior Harold Ikes, had a budget of over $3 billion, overseeing the construction of large-scale public works, including such landmarks as San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge and New York City's Triborough Bridge, it hoped to stimulate the economy by creating jobs and, more important, by generating orders for materials that American industry produced. To some degree, the PWA accomplished this mission, although Ikes was such a scrupulous administrator that he failed to spend all of the money available to him. The NRA, however, was the cornerstone of FDR's plan for industry. It proposed a business-government partnership in which business leaders, under the watchful eye of the NRA, would draft fair codes of competition regulating prices and wages. The codes would also outlaw cutthroat practices, such as below-cost sales and child labor. Unhealthy competition between businesses would thus become a thing of the past, spurring job creation and economic growth. Additionally, Section 7A of the NIRA guaranteed labor the right to organize and bargain collectively. As an enticement to business, the NIRA suspended antitrust laws that had been reviled by business leaders since the beginning of the 20th century. Under the leadership of General Hugh Johnson, the NRA attempted to rally public support to its program, hoping that public pressure, rather than federal government power, would compel American industry to support the NRA. Johnson held rallies and parades and urged businesses that had agreed to the codes to put the NRA's symbol, the Blue Eagle, in their storefronts. In sum, the NRA signified FDR's belief that business, with a little push from government, could regulate itself. This strategy, however, proved inadequate and perhaps naive on FDR's part. Businesses heeded the codes when they saw fit and ignored them when it served their purposes. Small business owners complained, with good reason, that big businesses dominated the code-drafting process and looked to drive their smaller competitors out of the market. Labor unions enjoyed a newfound legitimacy, symbolized by the millions of workers who joined, but found that businesses ignored provisions that guaranteed workers' wages and hours. By the end of 1933, it was clear that the NRA was anything but a success. FDR had promised an energetic attack on the Great Depression with his New Deal, and he kept his word, urging Congress to pass laws which established dozens of New Deal programs. But the New Deal accumulated a record of notable failures as well as successes. But eventually, a host of critics arose on the political left and right to attack Roosevelt and his policies. In 1934, conservative businessmen and dissident Democrats like 1928 presidential candidate Al Smith formed the American Liberty League, which tarred the New Deal as a radical and un-American assault upon the basic principles of capitalism and free enterprise. Others criticized FDR for not doing enough for those hardest hit by the Depression, the poor, the elderly, and the working class. 
Democratic Senator Huey Long of Louisiana was an early supporter of the New Deal, but soon accused FDR of falling captive to American business interests. Long insisted that his, quote, share our wealth plan of income redistribution would make every man a king. Another early supporter of the New Deal, Detroit's father, Charles Coughlin, took to the radio airwaves in 1934 to tell his estimated 40 million listeners that the key to ending the Depression was free silver. Remember that old slogan? Well, it was revived again in the mid-1930s as a way to increase the wealth of poorer Americans, mostly farmers. But the most powerful opponent of FDR's New Deal initiatives came from within the government itself, the United States Supreme Court. In a series of landmark cases, the court struck down some of the most important pieces of New Deal legislation. In the May 1935 Schechter decision, the court invalidated the NIRA on the grounds that Congress had improperly delegated its powers to the executive and that it unconstitutionally interfered with intrastate commerce. In 1936, the court's Butler decision shut down the AAA because of its tax provisions. FDR legitimately worried that the court might reject most of the New Deal's legislation as unconstitutional. Moreover, growing criticism of the New Deal from the left, from the right, and from within the government revealed that FDR's popular support might be ebbing as the 1936 presidential election drew near. With attacks on his domestic programs mounting, Roosevelt decided to change direction, launching what historians call the Second New Deal. In the summer of 1935, during what became known as the Second Hundred Days, FDR won passage of a slew of progressive legislation that almost single-handedly dedicated the United States government to providing a minimum level of social and economic protection for all Americans. Three major initiatives represented the administration's turn to the political left. The Works Progress Administration, the Wagner-Connery National Labor Relations Act, or the Wagner Act for short, and the Social Security Act. Under the leadership of Harry Hopkins, the WPA aimed to give unemployed Americans jobs rather than signing them up for the public dole. By 1937, 3 million Americans were receiving WPA checks for building schools, hospitals, and airports, and for pursuing cultural projects in theater, music, literature, and history. Together with the PWA, the WPA transformed the face of the land, from LaGuardia Airport and the Triborough Bridge in New York to the Orange Bowl in Miami, to the Oregon Coastal Highway. The National Youth Administration, the NYA, an agency of the WPA, trained and employed hundreds of thousands of teenagers and made it possible for many more young people, including the future playwright Arthur Miller, to work their way through college. FDR also threw his support behind the Wagner Act, which had been languishing for months in Congress. This legislation guaranteed labor unions the right to organize and bargain collectively and established the National Labor Relations Board to enforce these rights. It also curbed employer use of unfair labor practices, like blacklisting union organizers or unionized workers. Because of the legitimacy conferred on unions by the Wagner Act, the legislation became known as the Magna Carta for American labor unions. With this new political power, union membership swelled to more than 13 million Americans during the 1940s. 
finally, in August, FDR signed the Social Security Act of 1935. This bill, like the Wagner Act, had been stalled in Congress until FDR declared it vital legislation. With its passage came programs like old age assistance, old age insurance, unemployment insurance, aid to dependent children, and aid to the blind. Taken together, these programs represented a significant commitment to developing a welfare state in the United States. FDR's policies were widely popular with large segments of the American population and had earned him considerable goodwill by the time the 1936 elections arrived. That year, FDR ran on his policies of the previous four years, vowing to voters he would continue to manage and fight the Depression with government action. The Republicans, still reeling after their drumming in 1932, had few choices for their nominee, and ultimately settled on Kansas Governor Alf Landon, a well-respected but blunt candidate few liked. While Roosevelt campaigned on his New Deal programs, Landon sought to win over voters who approved of the goals of the New Deal, but disagreed with its implementation. In the election, Roosevelt won in another massive landslide, garnering over 60% of the popular vote and carrying every state except Maine and Vermont. The Democrats also expanded their majorities in Congress, winning control of over three-quarters of the seats in each house. The election also saw the consolidation of the New Deal coalition. While the Democrats lost some of their traditional allies in big business, they were replaced by groups such as organized labor and African Americans, the latter of whom voted Democratic for the first time since the Civil War. Roosevelt lost high-income voters, especially businessmen and professionals, but made major gains among the poor and minorities. The election was a clear mandate by the American people for FDR, to continue with his New Deal agenda. In his second inaugural address in 1937, FDR vowed to continue fighting for the nation's underprivileged. He understood, though, that despite his victory in the 1936 election, his New Deal program was by no means safe. The Supreme Court and a coalition of Republicans and conservative Democrats had at various times proven hostile to his New Deal. Thus, Roosevelt set out in his second term to remove these roadblocks. All too often, however, he encountered stiff resistance. The Supreme Court topped FDR's list of concerns. If the court had ruled the centerpiece of the early New Deal unconstitutional, FDR reasoned, it was likely to do the same to subsequent programs, such as the Social Security Act. Roosevelt's best hope was for the composition of the court to change, But older, conservative justices opposed to FDR's program refused to retire. And so, FDR sought a more systemic way to shield his policies from court action. In early February 1937, he proposed legislation that would expand the membership of the court, adding a new justice for every sitting justice over the age of 75. This maneuver would have put six new Roosevelt-appointed justices on the court, giving FDR a comfortable majority that could be expected to validate the New Deal. Though most of the press erupted in fury, denouncing FDR as a would-be dictator, he had a large enough majority in both houses of Congress that most expected the bill to pass. But in late March, the court began to uphold state and federal social legislation in what has been called the switch in time that saved nine. When the bill finally reached the Senate floor in July, Roosevelt no longer had the votes he needed. He claimed, though, with good reason, that though he had lost the battle, 
he had won the war, for never again did the court strike down a New Deal law. Scholars differ on why the court changed, but they almost all agree that what happened in 1937 was nothing less than a constitutional revolution. From that day until the present, the court has not invalidated a single piece of major New Deal legislation regulating business or expanding social rights. In addition to revamping the Supreme Court, FDR believed that he needed to reform and strengthen the presidency, specifically the administrative units and bureaucracy charged with implementing the chief executive's policies. During his first term, FDR quickly found that the federal bureaucracy, specifically at the Treasury and State Departments, moved too slowly for his taste. FDR often chose to bypass these established channels, creating emergency agencies in their stead. His 1937 plan for executive reorganization called for a number of changes, which included the president to receive six full-time executive assistants, a single administrator to replace the three-member Civil Service Commission, the president and his staff to assume more responsibility in budget planning, and for every executive agency to come under the control of one of the cabinet departments. The president's conservative critics pounced on the plan, seeing it as an example of FDR's imperious and power-hungry nature, and Congress refused to pass it. But in 1939, Congress did pass a reorganization bill that created the Executive Office of the President, the EOP, and allowed FDR to shift a number of executive agencies, including the Bureau of the Budget, to its watch. While FDR did not get the far-reaching result he sought in 1937, the 1939 legislation strengthened the presidency immeasurably. But for all the gains and successes FDR made in his first five years as president, the economy continued to struggle. Though there was hope by many that the Depression would finally come to an end by the latter part of the decade, that hope was dashed when the economy relapsed in mid-1937. That fall, industrial production fell by 33%, national income dropped by 12%, and industrial stock prices plummeted by 50%. Nearly 4 million people lost their jobs, and the total number of unemployed increased to 11.5 million. The Roosevelt Recession, as it came to be called, occurred largely because the president, along with some of his advisors, led by Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau, were determined to balance the federal budget and had, as a result, reduced government spending. In 1936, the government contributed $4.1 billion to consumer purchasing power, versus less than $1 billion in 1937. This new recession hit hard, and at first, Roosevelt chose to maintain his fiscally conservative course. But in April 1938, worried that a continuing recession and the appearance of White House inactivity would doom Democrats in the 1938 congressional midterms, FDR jettisoned Morgenthau's advice. Instead, he listened to Harry Hopkins and other advisors who believed that government spending on relief and public works would revive the economy, even if such spending produced ever larger deficits. Their rationale for this approach was that the Depression was the product of underconsumption and that putting money in the hands of consumers or priming the pump would stimulate consumer spending and perk up the economy. As a result, FDR asked Congress for $5 billion in relief programs, which passed in the spring and summer of 1938. But despite this infusion of federal money into the economy, the nation still suffered from underconsumption 
and lay mired in depression. In 1939, over 19% of the nation's workforce remained unemployed. Stock prices had yet to recover from the crash of 1929, and despite the New Deal, the U.S. economy in 1940, though considerably improved, had not yet regained its former vigor. In hindsight, many economists and historians claim that FDR's strategy of deficit spending and pump priming was sound, but that $5 billion was too small to jumpstart the nation's economy. Nonetheless, as the historian Alan Brinkley has argued, a generation of economic policymakers adopted the view that the manipulation of government fiscal policies was the key to maintaining a healthy economy. As a result, this approach colored federal efforts to regulate the economy for the next 30 years, and continues very much to this day. Despite all of FDR's domestic programs passed between 1933 and 1940, it would ultimately be a world war that would finally bring the nation out of the Great Depression. And that brings us to 1940. Exhausted yet? FDR can be a very exhausting president to study, mostly due to the fact that he essentially had two presidencies. The first presidency stretched from 1933 until 1941, with his primary focus centered on ending the Great Depression and restoring confidence in the federal government. His second presidency, which would begin shortly after his re-election in 1940, would be devoted exclusively to combating fascist forces abroad. So, take a deep breath and let's begin Roosevelt's second presidency. Until FDR, no president had served more than two terms in office, sticking to the tradition set by George Washington. Though some presidents had toyed with the idea, including our old friend Ulysses S. Grant, none had ever actually followed through. In the months leading up to the 1940 Democratic National Convention, there was considerable speculation as to whether Roosevelt would run for an unprecedented third term. Roosevelt, ever the coy politician, refused to give a definitive statement as to his willingness to be a candidate again, and he even indicated to some ambitious Democrats, such as James Fairley, that he would not run for a third term and that they could seek the Democratic nomination. Farley and Vice President John Garner were not pleased with FDR's decision to break from Washington's president. But as Germany swept through Western Europe and menaced Britain in mid-1940, Roosevelt decided that only he had the necessary experience and skills to see the nation safely through the Nazi threat. He was aided by the party's political bosses, who feared that no Democrat except Roosevelt could defeat Wendell Wilkie, the popular Republican nominee. At the July 1940 Democratic Convention in Chicago, Roosevelt easily swept aside challenges from Farley and Vice President Garner, who had turned against Roosevelt in his second term because of his liberal economic and social policies. To replace Garner on the ticket, Roosevelt turned to Secretary of Agriculture Henry Wallace of Iowa, a former Republican who strongly supported the New Deal and was popular in farm states. The choice was strenuously opposed by many of the party's conservatives, who felt Wallace was too radical and eccentric in his private life to be an effective running mate. But Roosevelt insisted that without Wallace on the ticket, he would decline renomination, and thus Wallace won the vice presidential nomination. A late August poll taken by Gallup in 1940 found the race to be essentially tied, but Roosevelt's popularity surged in September following the announcement of the Destroyers for Bases Agreement. 
Wilkie supported much of the New Deal, as well as rearmament and aid to Britain, but warned that Roosevelt would drag the country into another European war. Responding to Wilkie's attacks, Roosevelt promised to keep the country out of the war. Roosevelt won the 1940 election with 55% of the popular vote, 38 of the 48 states, and almost 85% of the electoral vote. Once again, the American people put their faith in FDR. As Roosevelt prepared for his third inauguration as president, he kept a wary eye on events unfolding in Europe and Asia. During the mid-1930s, Japan had become increasingly belligerent in the Western Pacific, eventually invading China. In Europe, Germany and Italy had committed flagrant violations of international law and annexed numerous territory during the later part of the decade. In September 1939, Germany invaded Poland, sparking the Second World War. Roosevelt had wanted to curb Japan's growing power in Asia by supporting China, although this policy had strict limits. Previously, the Hoover administration had acquiesced in Japan's flagrant occupation of Manchuria in 1931, a Chinese territory rich in minerals, and the Roosevelt administration proved no more willing in the intervening years to actively oppose Japanese aggression. Instead, like Hoover before him, Roosevelt merely refused to recognize Japanese control of Manchuria. Likewise, Italy's invasion of Ethiopia in 1935 provoked no significant response from the United States or any other Western nation. The leaders of Japan and Germany surely noted the democracy's failures to respond to aggression in Manchuria and Ethiopia. In Japan, a militarist and expansionist government, still smarting from what it perceived as insulting treatment in the aftermath of the Great War, eyed regional domination of the Western Pacific and Asia. Japan's developing grand strategy involved gaining access to the oil and other raw materials of East Asia and establishing a colonial empire, or what Japanese leaders in 1938 called a Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. In Germany, Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933, blaming old enemies and Jews for his country's woes. Hitler spoke menacingly of the German people's need for more living space and his belief in the superiority of the Aryan race. He also flagrantly announced that Germany would begin to rearm itself, repudiating the disarmament agreements it had signed in the 1920s. In this ominous environment, the United States adopted an official policy of neutrality. Indeed, between 1935 and 1939, Congress passed five different neutrality acts that forbade American involvement in foreign conflicts. The impetus for these laws came from a revitalized American peace movement, the revelations of war profiteering by American munitions businesses during the Great War, and a widespread belief among Americans that their intervention in the European war had been fruitless. Roosevelt tried to water down these laws, which often made no distinction between the aggressor and the victim, with mixed success. Unsurprisingly, then, the United States stood idle as Europe moved closer to war. In 1936, a civil war erupted in Spain, pitting the Republican Spanish government against the fascist forces of Generalissimo Francisco Franco. Franco received support from Germany and Italy, while England, France, and the United States, citing their desire to keep the Spanish conflict from becoming a Second World War, ignored the Republican forces' calls for aid. Franco emerged victorious in 1939. Hitler began his ruinous conquest of Europe in 1936, 
marching his troops into the Rhineland, a demilitarized zone that bordered France, Belgium, and Germany. In late 1936, Germany allied with Italy and Japan. It annexed Austria two years later. As Hitler eyed the Sudetenland, a part of Czechoslovakia, France and Britain, who feared a continent-wide conflict, met with Hitler at Munich and struck what they thought was a peace-saving bargain. They would accede to Hitler's conquest of the Sudetenland in exchange for his agreement not to pursue more territory. The deal was struck without the participation of the Czechs and with the approval of FDR. Six months later, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia in outright defiance of the Munich Agreement. It was clear that Hitler's next target was Poland, and Britain and France pledged themselves to its defense. In a masterful diplomatic move, Hitler concluded a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union in late August 1939, removing an adversary to his east. On September 1st, 1939, German forces invaded Poland. Britain and France responded by declaring war on Germany. World War II had begun. In the spring of 1940, Hitler turned his attention towards Western Europe, invading and conquering Denmark, Holland, Belgium, Norway, and France. Nazi Germany, along with its allies Italy and the Soviet Union, now controlled all of continental Europe. Only Britain remained free of the Nazi yoke. In the summer of 1940, as FDR began his campaign for a third term as president, Hitler began a massive air war against England to soften its defenses in preparation for a full-scale invasion of the British Isles. Roosevelt's sympathies clearly lay with the British and French, but he was hamstrung by the Neutrality Acts and a strong isolationist bloc in American politics. Upon the outbreak of hostilities in September 1939, FDR reasserted American neutrality, noting, however, that he could not ask that every American remain neutral in thought as well. He did his best, then, to nudge the United States towards supporting Great Britain, supplying that nation with all aid, quote, short of war. This strategy had three main effects. First, it offered Britain both psychological encouragement and material aid, though often more of the former than the latter. Second, it bought the United States time to shore up its military preparedness, which was inadequate for a world war. Finally, it made the United States an active, if undeclared, participant in the war. In the fall of 1939, FDR won a slight revision of the Neutrality Act, which would allow belligerents to buy arms in the United States, but only with cash and only if they transported their purchases themselves, a provision called cash and carry. Nearly one year later, the United States and Britain struck a deal in which the Americans loaned the British 50 mothballed destroyers in return for the use of eight British military bases. And in March 1941, FDR won enactment of a Lend-Lease program that allowed the British and other allies continued access to American arms and supplies despite their rapidly deteriorating financial situations. The huge sum of $7 billion that Congress appropriated would eventually reach more than $50 billion. The war took a vital turn that same year. After failing to subdue the British through the air, the so-called Battle of Britain, in which the Royal Air Force emerged victorious over the German Luftwaffe, Hitler made two fateful decisions. First, he launched a massive invasion of his former ally, the Soviet Union. Second, he tried to conquer the British by choking that island nation from the sea, ordering Nazi submarines to attack British shipping in the North Atlantic. 
the two decisions only drew the United States more deeply into the war. FDR extended Lend-Lease to aid the Soviets, and more importantly, he ordered the American Navy to the North Atlantic, first to patrol that region and then to escort British ships. This latter order allowed the Navy to fire on sight at German subs. By the fall of 1941, Germany and the United States were at war in all but name. Roosevelt's leadership during this period was crucial. He and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill formed an effective team and crafted a joint statement of their nation's war goals called the Atlantic Charter in August of 1941. At home, FDR managed to quiet the isolationist howls that greeted his short-of-war strategy and to further the process of rebuilding and rearming America's military. Still, FDR rarely staked out policy positions which committed the nation to a clear course of action. Roosevelt's actions essentially placed the United States at war, but FDR refused to acknowledge the danger, often responding with evasive answers to press queries about the difference between the nation being short of war and at war. The immense challenges that Roosevelt faced in the European conflict were compounded by the worsening situation in Asia, and particularly by the downturn in U.S.-Japanese relations. In 1937, that relationship deteriorated further after Japan attacked China, a nation to which a number of Americans had a strong attachment. FDR offered aid to China, although the neutrality laws and the power of the isolationist bloc in Congress ensured that such assistance remained extremely limited. Instead, FDR's strategy, in concert with other Western nations, was to contain and isolate Japan economically and politically. If he could keep the, quote, Japanese dog, as Churchill referred to Japan, at bay, FDR reasoned that he could deal with what he saw as the more pressing German problem. In practical terms, FDR also realized how difficult it would be for the United States to prepare for, much less to fight, wars simultaneously in Asia and Europe. The strategy turned out to have significant drawbacks. By isolating Japan, the United States and its allies exacerbated Japan's fears of being denied access to the resources it needed to further prosecute its war in China. By the summer of 1941, Japan's leaders felt increasingly hemmed in by a coalition of America, Britain, China, and the Dutch, and adopted overtly aggressive foreign and military policies. Japan invaded southern Indochina in the summer of 1941 to secure industrial supplies it deemed necessary to maintain its empire and military advantage. The Roosevelt administration responded by freezing Japan's assets in the United States and restricting its access to petroleum products. Japanese leaders were furious and even more convinced that the United States imperiled their national interest. In Washington, most, including Roosevelt, New war with Japan was likely, but they remained unsure of when or how. The when and how came in an unexpected fashion. American military leaders expected some sort of surprise attack by the Japanese in either late 1941 or 1942, but they expected the attack to come in the Philippines, which the U.S. still controlled in 1941. Few ever imagined Japan would be capable of reaching the Hawaiian Islands, let alone launching a massive attack without the knowledge of American military leaders. But on December 7, 1941, Japan launched a surprise attack against the United States at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, America's vital outpost in the Pacific. 
The attack greatly damaged the U.S. Pacific Fleet, but failed to destroy the Navy's carrier fleet, which was away at sea during the attack. Congress declared war on Japan on December 8th. Three days later, Germany and Italy declared war on the United States, which the U.S. Congress acknowledged in a resolution accepting the state of war. Roosevelt, in his war message to Congress on December 8th, called Japan's attack on Hawaii a dastardly, unprovoked action by the Japanese Empire, calling December 7th a date that would live in infamy. But more importantly for FDR, he finally had Congress and the country on his side to wage the war he had known for over a year was coming. The fortunes of the Allies looked bleak in the first months of 1942. By January, the British and the Soviets, who in May had signed a formal treaty of alliance, appeared to have halted the Nazi onslaught, at least temporarily. But by no means, however, were these two nations, even with American aid, ready to turn the war decisively in their favor, especially with the Nazis in control of Western Europe and the American war machine still in varying states of readiness. Moreover, during the first months of 1942, German submarines sent nearly one million tons of Allied shipping to the bottom of the Atlantic. In Asia, Japan racked up a string of victories over the United States and its British and Dutch allies as it moved from island to island evicting Allied defenders. The United States suffered costly defeats in the Philippines in April and May, as well as in the Pacific at the Battle of the Java Sea. Allied strategy, agreed upon by the United States and Britain before America had entered the war, called for the United States to fight a holding action in the Pacific, while the Allies concentrated on the defeat of Nazi Germany. America's first significant gains, however, came against Japan, as the U.S. Navy scored a series of victories in 1942, first in the Coral Sea in early May, and then at Midway Island in June, effectively halting the Japanese advance. In Europe, the Soviet Union absorbed devastating attacks from the German army on the Eastern Front, with the Nazis advancing to within 30 miles of Moscow. In the North Atlantic, British and American ships, utilizing the convoy strategy and superior technology, reduced the effectiveness of German submarines. By November, Britain and the United States were able to mount a coordinated offensive against Germany, launching an attack in North Africa. The tide turned against Japan and Germany in favor of the Allies the following year. In the Pacific, the United States began to tighten the noose around the Japanese through an island-hopping campaign. The Americans won major victories at Guadalcanal, Bougainville, and Tarawa. The fighting, however, was exceptionally brutal, and casualties were high on both sides. At Tarawa, a 300-acre spit of land, the Americans took 3,000 casualties. In Europe, the British and the Americans completed the North Africa campaign in May 1943, a few months after the Soviets had turned back the Germans at Stalingrad, the decisive battle on the Eastern Front. Churchill had convinced FDR at the Casablanca Conference in January 1943 that the Allies should next invade the, quote, soft underbelly of Nazi Europe, Italy. Stalin disagreed. He wanted a major assault on France to force the Germans to shift troops to Western Europe. But Britain felt an attack into France would be easily repulsed by the Germans, and opted to try to knock Italy out of the war first before any major operations could be launched into France. The joint Anglo-American invasion of Italy began in the summer of 1943. It was a brutal and bloody fight that lasted for two years. 
In November, the big three, FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, met in Tehran, Iran, where FDR and Churchill promised a skeptical Stalin that they would invade France in 1944. Under the command of American General Dwight D. Eisenhower, the Allies landed in northwestern France on June 6, 1944. The D-Day operation was a grand success, and Paris was liberated by the end of the summer. During the fall of 1944, American and British forces continued to penetrate deep into eastern and southern France, forcing the German army to retreat back towards the Ardennes. The war appeared to be heading towards its final chapter, as the Soviets made quick progress on the eastern front, and the Americans and British closed in on Germany. The Allies made similar gains in Asia in 1944, winning key battles in the Philippines, New Guinea, Saipan, and Guam. These two later victories gave the United States control of islands from which they could launch bombers to attack major Japanese cities from the air. This air war began in earnest in late 1944, decimating Japan's industrial centers and terrorizing its people. The invasion of Japan, however, lay ahead in 1945, and American war planners feared it would be as bloody as the Pacific campaign that preceded it, only on a larger scale. Against the backdrop of these developments, FDR and his aides hammered out plans for the structure of the post-war world, a task they undertook beginning in the early 1940s. In 1942, FDR played a key role in forging a coalition of 26 nations which affirmed the ideals set down in the Atlantic Charter. FDR called this coalition the United Nations. The president hoped that the United Nations, as an organization, would outlast the war and henceforth adopt a new agenda, world peace and cooperation. At Tehran in 1943, FDR managed to secure Stalin's agreement to join that proposed body. As the tide of the war began to turn in favor of the Allies in mid-1944, Americans wondered if FDR would run for a fourth term in office. The military buildup as a result of the onset of the war had spurred economic growth. Unemployment fell in half, from 7.7 million in the spring of 1940 to 3.4 million in the fall of 1941, and fell in half again to 1.5 million in the fall of 1942. The need for labor had created a growing labor shortage, accelerating the second wave of the Great Migration of African Americans, farmers, and others from rural populations to manufacturing centers. African Americans from the South went to California and other West Coast states for new jobs in the defense industry. In 1941, to pay for increased government spending, Roosevelt proposed to Congress that they enact an income tax rate of 99.5% on all income over $100,000. When the proposal failed, he issued an executive order imposing an income tax of 100% on income over $25,000, which Congress rescinded. The Revenue Act of 1942 instituted top tax rates as high as 94%, which greatly increased the tax base and instituted the first federal withholding tax. In 1944, Roosevelt requested that Congress enact legislation that would tax all, quote, unreasonable profits, both corporate and individual, and thereby support his declared need for over $10 billion in revenue for the war and other government measures. Congress would override Roosevelt's veto to pass a smaller revenue bill raising $2 billion, and that would be the last tax legislation that Roosevelt would propose during his administration. 
Roosevelt's 1944 State of the Union Address advocated that Americans should think of basic economic rights as a second Bill of Rights. He stated that all Americans should have the right to adequate medical care, a good education, a decent home, and a useful job. In the most ambitious domestic proposal of his third term, Roosevelt proposed the GI Bill, which would create a massive benefits program for returning soldiers. Benefits included post-secondary education, medical care, unemployment insurance, job counseling, and low-cost loans for homes and businesses. The GI Bill passed unanimously in both houses of Congress and was signed into law in June 1944. Of the 15 million Americans who served in World War II, more than half benefited from the educational opportunities provided for in the GI Bill. While some Democrats had opposed Roosevelt's nomination in 1940, the president faced little difficulty in securing his renomination at the 1944 Democratic National Convention. Roosevelt made it clear before the convention that he was seeking another term, and on the lone presidential ballot of the convention, Roosevelt won the vast majority of delegates, although a minority of Southern Democrats voted for Harry F. Byrd. Party leaders prevailed upon Roosevelt to drop Vice President Wallace from the ticket, believing him to be an electoral liability and a poor potential successor in case of Roosevelt's death. Roosevelt preferred Burns as Wallace's replacement, but was eventually convinced to support Senator Harry S. Truman of Missouri, who had earned renown for his investigation of war production inefficiency and was acceptable to the various factions of the party. On the second vice presidential ballot of the convention, Truman defeated Wallace to win the nomination. The Republicans nominated Thomas E. Dewey, the governor of New York, who had a reputation as a liberal in his party. The Republicans accused the Roosevelt administration of domestic corruption and bureaucratic inefficiency, but Dewey's most effective gambit was to discreetly raise the issue of Roosevelt's age and health. He assailed the president as a tired old man with tired old men in his cabinet, pointedly suggesting that the president's lack of vigor had produced a less than vigorous economic recovery. FDR, as most observers could see from his weight loss and haggard appearance, was a tired man in 1944. But upon entering the campaign in earnest in late September 1944, Roosevelt displayed enough passion and fight to allay most concerns and to deflect Republican attacks. With the war still raging, he urged voters not to change horses in midstream. Labor unions, which had grown rapidly during the war, fully supported Roosevelt. Roosevelt and Truman won the 1944 election by a comfortable margin, defeating Dewey and his running mate John W. Bricker with 53.4% of the popular vote and 432 electoral votes. The president campaigned in favor of a strong United Nations, so his victory symbolized support for the nation's future participation in the international community. Discussions on the post-war world landscape continued between FDR, Churchill, and Stalin at Yalta in the Crimea in January 1945. By this time, FDR was a weak and sick man, run down from his years in office, his energetic campaigning, and his medical condition. The Yalta meeting was extremely tense. Victory in Europe was almost assured, but the Allies had not yet agreed on post-war Europe's political or economic future. Stalin was angry that the Americans and British had not crossed the English Channel earlier, leaving the Soviets to absorb the brunt of Germany's military power. Roosevelt appreciated Stalin's complaints, though as early as 1943, he was preparing to recognize a Soviet sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. 
For its part, Moscow interpreted the Yalta agreements, which included a signed Declaration of Liberated Europe, as granting it a free hand to set up puppet governments throughout the region. One month after Yalta, Allied troops crossed the Rhine River into Germany. German soldiers were now surrendering in the tens of thousands as the Nazi regime crumbled. As they advanced, Allied troops uncovered the realities of Hitler's race policy. The concentration camps that had been built for resettling and working political prisoners from all over Europe and the extermination camps, set up primarily in Central and Eastern Europe, charged with exterminating entire groups of people, with Jews as the primary target. FDR and his administration had known for much of the war that the Nazis were killing Jews, although they probably did not, and could not, conceive of the scale of this operation. FDR's policy was to win the war first, which would in turn stop the killing. Many years later, this policy would come under attack by those who believed that America could have, and should have, done more to help European Jews. As the Allies closed in on Berlin, Hitler, surrounded by a small flock of loyal followers, implored his armed forces, now numbering increasing numbers of teenage boys, to continue the fight. On the other side of the globe, U.S. forces tightened the ring around Japan. Victory was finally at hand, but Franklin D. Roosevelt would not live to celebrate that victory. When Roosevelt returned to the United States from the Yalta Conference, many were shocked to see how old, thin, and frail he looked. He spoke while seated in the well of the House of Representatives, an unprecedented concession to his physical incapacity. On March 29, 1945, Roosevelt went to the Little White House at Warm Springs, Georgia, to rest before his anticipated appearance at the founding conference of the United Nations. On the afternoon of April 12, 1945, in Warm Springs, while sitting for a portrait, Roosevelt muttered softly to his longtime mistress, Daisy Suckley, I have a terrific headache. Moments later, he slumped forward in his chair, unconscious. He was quickly carried into his bedroom. The president's attending cardiologist, Dr. Howard Bruin, diagnosed the medical emergency as a massive intracerebral hemorrhage. At 3.35 p.m. that day, Franklin D. Roosevelt died at the age of 63. The following morning, Roosevelt's body was placed in a flag-draped coffin and loaded onto the presidential train for the trip back to Washington. Along the route, thousands flocked to the tracks to pay their respects. After a White House funeral on April 14th, Roosevelt was transported by train from Washington, D.C. to his place of birth at Hyde Park. On April 15th, he was buried, per his wish, in the Rose Garden of his Springwood estate. Under Roosevelt's leadership, the United States emerged from World War II as the world's foremost economic, political, and military power. FDR's contributions to domestic life during his presidency were just as vital. While his New Deal did not end the Great Depression, Roosevelt's leadership abilities and his unwavering commitment to the cause of American ingenuity and spirit gave Americans hope and confidence in their darkest hours— and fundamentally reshaped the relationship between the federal government and the American people. FDR so dominated American politics that he almost single-handedly launched the Democratic Party into a position of prolonged political dominance. During his tenure, FDR also lifted the standing and power of the American presidency to unprecedented heights. More broadly, however, 
His New Deal programs marked a substantial turning point in the nation's political, economic, social, and cultural life. Under FDR, the American federal government assumed new and powerful roles in the nation's economy, in its corporate life, and in the health, welfare, and well-being of its citizens. When Japan and Germany forced his hand in December 1941, Roosevelt rallied Americans in support of a massive war effort, both at home and abroad, leading the nation to victory largely as a result of his military preparedness policies in the years leading up to the war. But more importantly, FDR reshaped the American presidency. Through his fireside chats delivered to an audience via the new technology of radio, FDR built a bond between himself and the public, doing much to shape the image of the president as the caretaker of the American people. Under FDR's leadership, the president's duties grew to encompass not only those of the chief executive as implementer of policy, but also chief legislator as drafter of policy. And in trying to design and craft legislation, FDR required a White House staff and set of advisors unlike any seen previously in Washington. The president, from then on, would need a full-time staff devoted to domestic and foreign policies, with expertise in these areas and a passion for governance. With enactment of the Executive Reorganization Bill in 1939, FDR changed the shape of the White House forever. Though he suffered multiple failures in his attempts to end the Depression and enacted several controversial policies, including the internment of Japanese Americans on the West Coast during the war, his overall effect on the country was positive, even if lacking in certain areas and for certain groups. In the 1920s, Americans preferred hands-off presidents. A decade later, they needed a hands-on president, leading them to elect FDR four times by considerable margins over his Republican opponents. FDR's legacy remains with us today, through the Social Security checks cashed by elderly Americans to the dams built to power whole regions of the country. No other president has had such a profound and far-reaching domestic agenda, and few faced and overcame such a string of domestic and foreign crises that threatened the very survival of the nation, earning him a spot in the top three of American presidents. Next time, we finally arrive at the number one spot on the rankings. And I know, you're probably wondering how we only have one spot left when we clearly have two very prominent presidents still left to discuss. But I assure you, it is not a mistake that FDR is ranked at number two. Our last two presidents each left such an indelible mark on our nation's history and the office of president even more profound than FDR, they each deserve to be ranked as America's greatest president. And therefore, they are ranked 1A and 1B. Yes, a bit of a cop-out on my part, I know, but it's my rankings and therefore, it's my rules. So next time, we will discuss 1B on the rankings, and you all know who he is, the great Abraham Lincoln, followed by 1A, the father of the nation, George Washington. After that, we will finish up the presidents with the insertion of Donald Trump and a special episode on William Henry Harrison before I take a brief hiatus to prepare for Season 2, Americans at War. Make sure to check out the Facebook page and Instagram, Bourbon and History, for pictures and other news about the podcast. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. 